so say we all. This is going to get pretty interesting. Define interesting. The God of God, we're all going to die. Only try to realize the truth. There is no spoon. Strawberry flavor. You are listening to the Sci-Fi Diner podcast, and now from the end of the universe, bringing you the latest in science fiction movies and television shows. Here are your hosts. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. This is episode 110. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Herzog. And hello, I am Miles P. McLaughlin. And we are here tonight to talk about all sorts of good sci-fi news, bring you a good interview, and all around just have a real good time talking about science fiction. Absolutely. Yeah. Man, Miles, how you been? Doing pretty good. Good, good. And what's been going on in the world of sci-fi for you? Um, I am now started – I just started uh – Season two of uh, Stargate Atlantis. Giving, so I'm giving uh, uh, SG one a break because both those stories are kind of meshing, and so I, if I watch uh, Atlantis, I'll catch up. Uh, a slacker, you're jumping ship. Well, I know what's going on. You're, you're saying, you know what? You're falling in love with Ronan. Well, I, I did see the first. What's Christopher Judge going to say to that? Oh man, he's going to be so upset with me. <laughs> but I, I could see why you have a guy crush on him. I mean, uh, oh, oh, Ronan. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, he's freaking awesome. So I, I like his look in uh, Stargate SG-1, a bit more SGA, I'm sorry, excuse me, uh, more than I like him his look in Conan. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it's too bad about Conan. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I'll see it eventually on DVD. I, I, it might I be a rental right. for me. Uh, it's definitely going to be a rental for me. No, nah, it's going to be good. You know, um, for me, I've been watching Voyager. I just got into season six, so I did the two-parter. Oh, good. Uh, the, the end of season five at season six. It was, it was fine. It was mm-hmm. good. Um, and I've been really enjoying, enjoying, enjoying the show. So I have two seasons left. Mm-hmm. And then I'll be moving on to uh, another Star Trek series. Speaking of Star Trek, uh, the latest Warehouse 13 episode, uh, Kate has, Mulgrew. has, uh, Captain Janeway herself, yeah. uh, Kate Mulgrew in it and, uh, Man, I wish I could spoil it, but I'm not going to. No, you better not, because I haven't watched a sucker yet. It's sitting on my iPad, waiting for me to run sometime. And you have hot coffee, in, you do. know, in your hand, so um, that might be bad. <laughs> is, that, is that bad thing? Is that a bad thing? Well, if it's hurled in my direction, yes. Okay. <laughs> so I'm not going to spoil. Yes. Where yes. Else or if I drop it, drop. Yes. That's, yeah. that's also a bad thing. Yes. So. <laughs> well, very cool. Mm-hmm. Very cool. And other than that, I haven't been watching too much. I have um Enemy Mine, is that the one? Yes. That's what we're reviewing for the Sci-Fi Rewind. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will have the Stargate Rewind out, probably, maybe even before this episode. But, cool. Uh, if you if you do the Rewind with us, um, go ahead and watch Enemy Mine, and we're going to be uh, doing that sometime later in September, mm-hmm. whenever we have a free night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so sometime. I think you'll like it. I uh, haven't watched it before, but mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to it. Who's mm-hmm. in the cast again? Uh, Louis Gossett Jr. and uh, Dennis Quaid. Dennis Quaid, that's right. It's a mm-hmm. Dennis Quaid movie. I've always saw it and said, ah, this doesn't really appeal to me, and now here I am mm-hmm. having to watch it. It's on my iPad ready to go. Cool. Another one of those things I should be watching but not. So I'm just getting my uh, I'm just getting my house ready for the zombie apocalypse. 
and you and you're ready, ready now, more ready than you were uh, uh, last week. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. According to some people, I'm launching my house into space. Mm-hmm. Well, I just found a good power source for my Stargate. Right, right. I, I hear that. I hear that. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's green. Mm-hmm. So, that for those of you who want to know, I or maybe don't want to know, I put in a solar system this week that is uh, going to power Miles Stargate. Mm-hmm. As well yeah. as your, your, you know, your home. So I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of a supplemental thing. The Stargate. Right. This it's really for the Stargate. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, well, let's go into the, tonight's show. Let's talk about what's on the menu tonight. And, Miles, you compiled this menu, so go ahead. Talk about it. Well, um, a couple weeks ago, we had the pleasure to talk with the uh, the uh, director and co-writer and uh, the other co-writer of A Liberator, uh, Mr. Aaron Pope and uh, Jim Surreal. Uh, that's the movie starring uh, Lou, uh, Lou Ferrigno and um, Michael Dorn. And the lady from the Femme Nikita, right? Yes. Um, I don't know what her um, name is. You probably do. Uh, I, it's off the tip of my tongue. Uh, Peter Wilson. There you go. Mm-hmm. See, you're, you're, be, you're a better man than I am. It's that, it's that, it's, it. it's that fountain of useless information right, right. That, I, that I can draw from. Just remember, you're the one wearing a red shirt. So <laughs> if I kill you off by the end of the show, it's not a big deal. Hey, red shirts always take one for the team. <laughs> um, and uh, we have trivia, obviously. Yes, and uh, a lot of you are, are having some trouble with that one. So um, uh, no answers. I'm going to keep that ball poster. That's what's going to happen. It's a nice poster. It's you know gold. So come on, folks. I, I know you can do it. Um, I mean, uh, well, we're, well, when I, read, when I read the question again, you know, um, maybe maybe we'll stimulate some uh, the re, you know some of your memories. But also in, in TV news, um, Trek invades Warehouse 13, which we talked a little bit about. And Elijah Dushku stands up for Hayden Pantier in a recent um, – uh, I guess Hayden Pantier was um, being uh, uh, criticized by some of the uh, – For charging Express. for uh, photos, right? Yes, charging yeah. for photos. Well, you know, and for those of you who don't remember who she is, she mm-hmm. is – Save the cheerleader. Save the world. That's right. She is a cheerleader. From, yes, from Heroes. And uh, go ahead. And uh, in some in some genre interest, uh, there's an interesting article about 14 awesome bad guys in uh, sci-fi and genre you don't want to mess with. Yep, and, and believe me, some of them you don't. And um, in movie news, we got a little bit of news. Uh, Dan Aykroyd drops a significant Ghostbusters 3 details. And uh, we have some pics of the new Superman costume. I would love. I can't wait for a Ghostbusters three. I think I'm ready for a new Ghostbusters yeah, movie. That'd be great. Mm-hmm. And uh, in DVD Blu-ray news, uh, we have a, we have some news about the Green Lantern uh, release, and Lucas is at it again uh, with the Blu-rays. And we gave you a hint of it at the very beginning of the show. If you listen, that was you know that's Miles' favorite line. Uh, he hasn't memorized. It, it's not too difficult. <laughs> no, it's not. And uh, our image of the day: uh, there's a Battlestar Galactica. Well, there's a wedding picture inspired by the Battlestar Galactica picture that was inspired by the Last the Supper. Last right? Supper, yes. Yeah. And uh, I'll, I'll give you this week's twist, and um, we'll have our uh, interview towards the end, and we'll have a sci-fi five of five. Yep, J.P. Harvey with another sci-fi. We have two left, and we'll do mm-hmm. another one. And if you want to do a sci-fi five and five, you can always just email us in at the sci-fi diner podcast at gmail.com. Send an audio file, MP3, or just email it, and we'll read it. So it's perfectly cool. Mm-hmm. Well, Miles, let's move on to some trivia. Well, we asked last time, can you name a show and the name of the episode that has had Saul Rubinek from Warehouse 13, uh, Robert Picardo from Star Trek Voyager and Stargate Atlantis, and Adam Baldwin from Firefly and Chuck, and too many other sh- uh, shows and movies to name. Uh, they all guest starred at the same time. 
And the prize is, and Scott wants to keep it for himself, but I, I, I have faith in you listeners that you'll be able to get this, uh, is a signed print of Cliff Simon uh, when he played ball. Yeah, very cool. Mm-hmm. Very cool. And uh, there's a code word they have to include if they want to submit their answer. Yes, yeah, so we don't want any spammers, so the code word is artifact. Yep, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, very cool. A signed, autographed picture of a system lord. I'm and, all for it. Mm-hmm. And... Um, one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet, but uh, he played one of the baddest uh, system lords uh, ever. Yeah, and actually one of the most fun, I think. Mm-hmm. I think one of the most fun, in my opinion. Uh, he, I think he had a good time uh, judging the uh, the, the uh, masquerade uh, costume contest. Uh, I think he did. I think he did. Yeah. Well, let's move into our first promo tonight. Our first promo comes from the guys at... In, in the land down under with Podcasters Emporium, Dave Gray and James Williams do a podcast called Podcasters Emporium. If you are thinking about podcasting or just interested in finding out more about podcasting, these guys do a show that kind of breaks down the nuts and bolts of what goes into a podcast, how to make your podcast sound good, how to promote it. And they do a really good job. And we've had Dave Gray on the show before, and we've got to have him back again. There'll probably be some sort of holiday uh, Christmas blockbuster movie towards right. the end of the year. We it's got any Mission Impossible for? I haven't heard of any other movie coming out in December. Oh man, well maybe it'll be MI four. Yeah, MI four. Yeah, MI4, yeah. Uh, you know, hey, we have Scotty in it, so, mm-hmm. so that's right. Good. <laughs> All right. Well, here's a promo for Podcasters Emporium. G'day, I'm Dave Gray. Are you a new show or a relatively new show that's trying to make your podcast sound great? Then you need to listen to Podcasters Emporium, a podcast that's by podcasters for podcasters. We'd be happy for you to join our community and be a part of what we call Podcasters Emporium. Join myself and James Williams as we explore podcasting and all its greatness. You can check out the show at podcastersemporium.com. the show and uh, let's move into what do we have first tv news we have some tv news first and uh first bit of tv news we have uh, trek invades warehouse 13 mtv zombies and more yeah well and really i guess the focus is on warehouse 13 right yeah that, that's where more of the focus is you're right all right do you want to read the story sure uh so star trek voyagers captain janeway has apparently slipped into quantum singularity and ended up in warehouse 13 as kate mulgrew pops up for extended visit We'll also get a look at MTV's uh, new horror mockumentary series, Death Valley, which explores a world where vampires, werewolves, and zombies roam the earth. Too bad they don't have a, a Suki uh, Stackhouse and her fairy powers in that universe. Also this week, the space race is on Astrius candidates for Eureka. Nina and Hicks uh, run into the uh, Heavenly Alpha on Alphas. The uh, the TAPS team takes us into an abandoned uh, nursing home on uh, Ghost Hunters. Uh, Bender deal with uh, monsters on Doctor Who. And the witch and the vampire war comes to a head in true blood. Uh, so just some things we have uh, looking forward to this week. Yeah, and uh, my students are really talking about Death Valley. They yeah. love Death Valley. Not a show that I'm going to watch. I'll probably pass on that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Janeway, you saw Janeway on mm-hmm. Warehouse 13. Without spoiling it, how did she do? I thought she was phenomenal. Um, I think she's a good fit for the show, and um, it, it seems like she's going to have a reoccurring role. Um, I think four episodes. So, 
maybe maybe we'll see more of her later on. But um, yeah, and uh, there, there's well, I look forward to you know what you think if you see it. Yeah, all we need is seven of nine. Oh wait, she was on. She was on a couple weeks ago. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> mm-hmm. I rewatched that episode again and again and again and again. Mm-hmm. I'm just kidding. <laughs> My wife's sitting in the room, so I got to be careful. But um, so Kate Mulgrew, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Awesome and, for her. and uh, our uh, our uh, favorite. Um, um, I forgot what the the the. Um, the, the name of the mafia that he was uh, part of in uh, Caprica, oh, the, yeah, the, the Lafa, or I forget, but um, yeah. uh, he has a. We see more of uh, Sasha Royce in nice. uh, uh, this, this past episode. Where we're excited talking. about that. He makes our list of bad guys, doesn't he? He does. He does. We're going to talk about him a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Um, in another piece of news, Elijah Discus slams the newspaper as a parasite after Hayden Panatera. How do you say Panatera? It, that sounds is, good. Uh, um, is attacked by this newspaper. Not mm-hmm. literally. They don't attack her, but they just verbally attack her. Right. Hero star Hayden Panettiere got buried by a snark in a snark by a UK newspaper last week because she was charging fans for autographs at a con, even though it's pretty much standard practice these days. And Eliza Dushku wasn't going to let him get away with it. After the Daily Mail wrote an article about a Toronto con making it look as if Panettiere was desperate for cash and charging for autographs due to the lack of work. Dushka wrote, Dear Sir, I write to you because the piece of your paper that concerns me was anonymous. The piece was a 27th August titled, Are Times That Tough for Hayden? Ridiculing and attacking the actor Hayden Panettiere uh, for participating in the Toronto Expo fan gathering where fans are charged money. Oh, shock. Oh, shame. In exchange for autographs, signed pictures, and the chance for a bit of FaceTime with their favorite celebrity. My dear editor, how does Hayden's actions differ from what you do for much of the content of your newspaper? There we have celebrities exchanging their name, sometimes willy-nilly, no permission asked, their time, their pictures in exchange for a bit of publicity for their work. At least the fan shows, such as the current Toronto Expo one, are honest and upfront about the exchange. In addition, these shows both fans and celebrities get some precious small contact with each other as real people. Your paper does not provide that value. Uh, yes, you have to tell me where you think you get off attempting to diminish a young actor who's attempting to reach out to fans in one of the only practical ways provided by the entertainment industry, an industry your paper is a part of and largely dependent on. In, in particular, it is particularly shoddy that the author scoffs at Hayden's lack of Harry Potter or Spider-Man fame while leaving himself unnamed as a Daily Mail reporter. Talk about being a parasite. Does the Daily Mail reporter want to shoot down Hayden's career just at its beginning and then take a salary for doing so? Seriously, sir, for shame. That's a pretty scathing letter. Yeah, but I, I, I think I find myself agreeing with her. Oh, I do. I do mm-hmm. agree with her. I tell you what, I don't want to be on the bad side of Echo, having seen what she can do. Absolutely. No, I don't want to. I watched jump. her dollhouse. I'm not messing with her. I, I did too. Um, she She kicks butt. Yep, and takes names. Mm-hmm. But uh, definitely, uh, definitely, I, can, I find myself in agreement. I mean, these stars go to the cons. This is one of the ways they supplement their income, and they have a right to be compensated. You know, and uh, and and no fan is going to be surprised the fact that they're charging. No, um, and not to mention many of these cons they give away time for free. Right, and if you, I mean, you and I have been recipient that. I mean, and other fans just hey, can we get a picture with you? And, you'll, and you, for the most part. The guest is usually pretty, um, you know, okay with that, and you know, so, um, and just just talking to them while they're sitting at their table and stuff. Um, 
So, I mean, and probably they paid a fee at the convention to get in too. So, um, so I mean, people are very aware of it. I'm not sure. I'm not, this this writer's a crack. He mustn't. Have, he mustn't have ever gone to a con before. That's I, all I can think. I of. think he's an opportunist trying to, uh, you know, make a name. Make it, you know, even though he didn't give his name, you know, just trying to, you know, make, make write something very scathing about somebody. It sells newspapers. You know, they mention him as as anonymous here, mm-hmm. but I wonder maybe it's this newspaper's practice to like some newspapers will kind of take credit for the writers. The writers are kind of hired and they don't necessarily own the article. Mm-hmm. And so maybe the paper owns it. Maybe that's why. Well, then the, the, the newspaper is... It's still the newspapers. ...is, re, is responsible yeah, for... Yeah, absolutely. For print, put, ...you know, putting that article in print then. Yeah. Um, so... For shame. But uh, for shame. I, I got to get kudos to Eliza for, you know, standing up for one of her you know, fellow, you know, yeah, fellow actors. I've seen the cheerleader. You can't kill her. No, you cannot. So, she'll, she'll be back. She'll be back. Mm-hmm. She definitely will be. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, let's move into 14 sci-fi and fantasy gangsters that you definitely don't want to cross. Right. Yes, and some of these we don't want to cross. So why don't we take every other one and just work our way down through the list? Okay. This is kind of a real fun list. Oh, yeah. And uh, why don't you start? Okay, I haven't watched the show yet, but um, uh, I think it's uh, Lord uh, – I'll say Lord Peter uh, Baelish, uh, sometimes called Littlefinger, uh, from Game of Thrones, uh, portrayed by Aiden uh, Gillen. Distrusting me is the best thing you could do. Littlefinger, a, a player within a, a King's Landing, has his hands in many pots from the court of the king to brothels within the city. Uh, master the coin for the king's court, gain through a calculated rise to power. Uh, Baelish helped to wor- spark the War of the Five Kings through his planning and lies. Feigning friendship and offering his advice towards uh, Edward Stark, he, betray- he betrayed the king's hand to his death to topple the regime. Yeah. Edward Stark is um, Tony Stark's great-great-grandfather. That could I'm, be. I'm, I'm going to spread that. Ru- <laughs> I'm going to spread that rumor. Okay. I haven't watched Game of Thrones either, but it is queued up in my uh, book list after I get through Harry Potter Seven. Mm-hmm. So I'm in the middle of Harry Potter Six and am enjoying it quite a bit. Well, our next one comes from Firefly fame, and while he is certainly a villain, he's not the worst villain in Firefly, in my opinion. They have dealt with uh, a lot yeah, worse. A lot worse, but. Um, I love this actor. I love Mark Shepard. I love Mark seeing, Shepard him, is awesome. seeing him in everything that I've, I, I love. And he's just such a good character. He has that raspy voice, mm-hmm. um, that sexy raspy voice. <laughs> but um, his name is Badger from Firefly, portrayed by Mark Shepard. And um, the line they have kind of as a representative of this in, is one of his real first iconic lines. And you're what? A petty thief with illusions of standing? Sad, little king of sad, little hill. Hailing from the Titan colony, Badger makes a name for himself as a local boss of the world, Persephone. And if it's being transported, Badger wants a part and a cut, and he's dealt with everything from illegal salvage, black market cattle herds, to quite a bit more. It's best to stay on his good side. It's suspected he plays both sides of the game when it suits him. Well, if you just remember even the show, I mean, even um, uh, Malcolm Reynolds, even though he was upset with him for not, you know, sticking to the agreement and paying for those um, ration bars or whatever, um, he doesn't cross them. I mean, uh, he actually he restrains Jane from doing anything. Yeah. And so even though he, you know, Ma- you know Reynolds has his own respect for Badger. Right, right. You, right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, why don't you take the next one? This guy's definitely... You definitely want to cross Carmine Falcone from Batman Begins, played by Tom Wilkinson. Uh, Gotham City is rotting from its core, leaving the entire city at the hands of the criminal underworld. At the top of the pecking order is Carmine Falcone, 
while a known gangster, the city was never able to be, be bring him to justice because of corruption and fear. Drug running, petty theft and robbery, Falcone's in charge of all. Cross him and he wouldn't hesitate to drop you in front of an audience of police officers, judges, and business people. You can't buy that type of power. Yeah, there's some real good scenes about Batman Begins. Oh, that. yeah. So I love it. Mm -hmm. So he definitely belongs near. This one, I have no comment on. Don Bot, Francis X, Clamps, Clamposto, Joey Mousepad. So I guess it's a trio from Futurama. Uh, Maurice LaMarche and John DiMaggio. Um, get a load of the ball bearings of these guys. New York's, uh, New New York's legendary robot mafia, the three of them, concern themselves entirely with corrupting local robotic unions and other debaucheries. Insult them and they make people and robots who cross them disappear, all the while cavorting with highly public figures, ranging from, uh, Cal Calzon of Robot Deville, Devil. They don't like witnesses, they get the clamps. Clamps! But I, um, no yeah. comment. I haven't watched Futurama in quite some time, even though I'm, I really should. I've watched a couple, but I don't, I, I didn't see those characters. They must be newer. I wonder if they're newer characters in the latest season here. Could be. All right. Um, Next one is, uh, Frank, uh, DiMacchio from the movie. I think it's D'Amico. D'Amico, uh, from Kick-Ass. Uh, portrayed by Mark Strong. As one of New York's major drug bosses, uh, Frank D'Amico commands in impressive operations, drugs, and wholesale murder. The key to all that, being as ruthless as possible by going out and killing someone dressed up as a superhero in broad daylight to broadcast in the severe beating and almost execution of two on the internet. Cross him and he'll cut your fingers off with a heavy-duty bolt cutter. Then he'll shoot you. Dude, he is evil. I have not seen Kick Ass, so it's a it's a wonderful movie, and he does a phenomenal job as a villain. Mm -hmm. When I say wonderful movie, it's uh, quite brutal and fun, mm -hmm. um, and uh, and especially if you like the f bomb. But, <laughs> okay, but no, it's 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 a well it's a well done movie and uh, very human, and it's actually I like Nick Cage in that movie, and I don't like him in many, but mm -hmm. I like him in that one. So, and the next one definitely is someone you don't want to cross, Miles. Absolutely not. Jabba the Hutt mm -hmm. from Star Wars, played by Larry Ward, the voice. Uh, Chuba, one of the most powerful crime lords in the galaxy, Jabba the Hutt's operations and influence spans much of the galaxy. An army of smugglers and mercenaries at his disposal, even... Even Boba Fett worked for him. He's concerned for, he's cornered the market on gambling, spice, and corruption from the Republic to the Galactic Empire, crossed him, and it will either feed you to one of his favorite peps, or keep you around as an art piece in his lair. Right. Yeah. And I he, don't want to mess with him. He definitely fed people to his pets and, uh, you know, Han Solo was, uh, you know, nice I, little ornament in his, uh, I fear him more than I fear the gay hut in the uh, newest in, uh, in the Clone Wars. Yeah. <laughs> do, they, do they do what? Have you kept, is he out of the picture? Is he still there? It, it has come back on it yet, so I don't know. Um, right. Yes, the um, effeminate uh, with the uh, southern southern accented, uh, ja, you know, hut. Just, <laughs> the effeminate southern bell hut. Yes. Uh, He's a southern bell, all right. All right. Well, let's move on uh, to. The next, yes, next one. Uh, one of my favorites, the Merovingian uh, from The Matrix. Uh, reloaded, and he was also in Revolutions. Uh, he was Absolutely. played by Lambert Wilson, an old program residing within the Matrix. The Merovingians describes himself as a simple trafficker of information, surrounded by deadly and resilient programs to carry out his orders. He seems to run as an underground movement within the Matrix, trafficking programs out of the Matrix, often exchange for something, cause and effect. Yeah, he just exudes power. I don't view him as being so fearful, but his henchmen, the people that he's working for him, 
Right. He doesn't need to be fearful. He yeah, has the, no. he, has, he, has, he has a whole slew of vampires and everything else working for him. Exactly. Uh, but he, some of the great dialogue in that movie was, <laughs> was said by him. He has some fun dialogue. Yes. Oh man, I, I love him. And the, the whole idea of causality was great. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad, glad he made the list. Needon from Stargate SG-1. Eric Steinberg played him, a ruthless crime lord of the universe. Needon deals with, with CASA distribution and other crimes with a small fleet of Hatak ships. He was known for killing off even his lieutenants among his organization, taking down anyone who gets in his way. Faced with problems from Earth Stargate SG-1, he put out a bounty on the unit, which ultimately backfired when the bounty hunter he hired killed him. Hmm. So remember that episode? I haven't got there yet. I'm Ooh, only we have season nine. I guess. Okay, I'm only I started I started season eight. So uh, maybe it's season eight, but he's in there. Okay, I forget what the um, what the group was. He with the Lucian Alliance? He is, I think, associated okay. loosely or was with it. Uh, but this one? Oh, this one you definitely... He's the one I think of. When I think of someone I don't want to cross with Firefly, it's this guy. This guy, you know, he, he scared me. Uh, uh, Adelaide Niska from Not Firefly, portrayed by uh, Mark Fairman. What is gossip? People talking. Niska has a reputation for his brutal and violent means for keeping people in line. Aboard his own space station, he has a small army of criminals at his disposal, ranging from enforcement to pharmaceuticals, theft, uh, subcontracting at times, paying very well up front. However, he's eager to, to turn his reputation from talk into fact, showing off his wife's nephew to uh, Serenity's crew to keep them in line. He's all, also not content with killing someone once. He's willing to keep them going for days before he is satisfied. Oh, yeah. He's a torture master. That, yeah, that the, scene with Mal being War tortured. stories, yeah. Oh, and, and, and Alan Tudyk? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Brutal stuff. Very, very brutal. I'm surprised, you know, I, you know, I question the choice to keep him alive. Right. I guess, you know, they, they, if the show had kept going, they may have, would have revisited his character, but. Oh, I'm sure they would have. Somebody like that needs to be taken out. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. He makes an appearance in, uh, Red, uh, Brown Coast Redemption. That's true, he does. Yep. So he needed to be kept alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Obis San, Sanjo, I guess it is, from District 9. Um, I forget him, actually. He's a pretty forgettable character. I didn't see District Nine. Yeah, so but he's there as he's there. He makes the list. Mm-hmm. Uh, who else makes the list? Uh, uh, Phelan from um, Balster Galactica, uh, portrayed by uh, Bill Duke. The top of the food chain in the Colonial Feet's black market. Uh, Phelan uh, drives an underground economy, getting people uh, what they need in stressful times, making a good living for himself and his men. Uh, dealing with contraband supplies, theft child prostitution and murder, he operated with impunity am- amongst the colonial fleet, going as far as to kill Pegasus commander Jack Fisk when the uh, officer attempted to go back on his deal with the uh, crime lord. Wow, I forget him. It was only one episode, and then he, then he got offed. Um, See, he's not the big villain for me. In, in that's why, I mean, if he only lasts one episode, I don't, you know. But, yeah. But they put him on there. They put him on, so I, I don't think he should be on the list. Mm-hmm. That's my opinion. Uh, Sal Maroney from the Dark Knight, Eric Roberts. Yeah, he, he can, he could make the list, I guess. Right. Definitely in there. After, uh, Carmine Falcone was toppled by Batman in Gotham City, Sal Maroney rose to power. So he becomes like the second villain here. Mm-hmm. But, um, and uh, our favorite, uh, Sam Adama from Caprica. Uh, a member of the Halatha gang, Sam Adama operates as a main enforcer for the group. Uh, orphaned at a young age, Sam ended up on Caprica, where he worked to hold on to his uh, Toron her- heritage. 
Then he worked as an, an assassin and enforcer, occasionally pulling a big job like helping his brother st- steal uh, property technology from the uh, Burgess Corporation. He's not above getting getting political either. When the rebellion struck on Toron, he became heavily involved. Right, right. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he definitely belongs on the list. Right. Because there were times I cringed watching him. Yeah, just uh, sometimes when you saw him at work. It yeah, was... that very first scene where he kills cigarette smoking man. Mm-hmm. Oh, the judge at the beginning. That's brutal. That is brutal. Mm-hmm. And we end, I believe, with the kingpin, which mm-hmm. is probably the only redemption thing, the only redemptive thing about Daredevil. Right. Uh, Michael Clark Duncan, who, uh, an alter ego of Wilson Fist, the kingpin is completely in charge of the crime in New York City's Hell's Kitchen. But he, of course, is the villain, mm-hmm. Daredevil. No, I mean, so, he, he. I thought he played a good uh, kingpin. Uh, he's definitely good at kingpin. And those are our villains for tonight. Mm-hmm. They are. Um, well, why don't we move into movie news? Well, we finally got some uh, some more Ghostbuster details, and we can thank Dan Aykroyd for that. I'm going to hum the theme song. You keep talking. All right. Yeah, we better not. Who you going to call? So after years of rumors, it appears that Ghostbusters 3 is finally moving forward and will likely do so with or without Bill Murray's involvement. Uh, Dan Aykroyd appeared on uh, the Dennis Miller show to discuss the project, dropping specific details about the sequel, hinting in the plan is to film uh, spring 2012, no matter what happens casting-wise. Yes, we will be doing the, the movie, and, and hopefully with Bill, with, with, with uh, Mr. Murray, he says. That, that is our hope. We have an excellent script we have to remember uh, is that Ghostbusters is bigger than any one component, although Billy was absolutely the lead contributor to it in a massive way, as was the director, uh, Harold uh, Ramis, uh, myself, and uh, Sigourney Weaver. The concept is much larger than any individual role, and the promise of Ghostbusters 3 is we get to hand the equipment and the franchise down to new blood. Ooh, yeah, I like that idea. So the community also confirmed reports that the plot will revolve around a new generation of Ghostbusters and hidden it at the states of his and, and, and Ramis' characters. Uh, my character, Ray, is now blind in one eye and can't drive the Cadillac, he says. He's got a bad knee and can't carry the packs. Egon is too large to get into the harness. We need young blood, and uh, that's the promise. Uh, we're going to hand it to a new generation. As for who might be cast as new characters, Ackroyd says that while no de- decision has been made, he does have a fondness for one piece of perspective casting. I like this guy, uh, Matthew Gray uh, uh, Goobler from Criminal Mind Show, he adds. But there's going to be casting. We're going to see everyone and, and that wants to do it. And, and we're going to need three guys and a young woman. Uh, so we'll have to keep an eye on this one. I'm excited about Ghostbusters 3, as I said before. Mm-hmm. I think, it, I mean, it's been a while since I've watched the original movies, and I'm sure they've dated themselves so bad. Maybe oh, that yeah. should be a rewind, rewind for us sometime. Well, so what do you think, Kevin? We should, should we watch a, a Ghostbusters rewind? Yeah, yeah, no. But, you know, I think that this is a, uh, this is something I'm looking forward to. I, I will see it. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely try to see this in the theater. Yeah. So who knows when it'll be out? Probably to what? Uh, well, they say they'll start filming in 2012, so... so 12, 2013. That'll probably be the earliest, that yeah. the earliest. Mm-hmm. Well, the Man of Steel, we get some new photos of him that actually show his muscles, right? <laughs> so we get a muscular... I still like that new costume. I like it. It's a little bit earthy, not quite as blue. It's a little bit darker blue. It's not as bright. like you. See. Yeah, it's not... Yeah. Uh, it doesn't shine. It's not very shiny, but... Um, so we'll embed the picture in the show notes so you can check it out. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but I'm, you know, these pictures tell nothing about the story. We don't have any and idea. And so until we get the story, I really can't make a judgment call right now. Or until we see a trailer, we really can't make the judgment call. Are we going to go see this or not? 
Well, it would have to really, really stink for me not to want to go see it. I oh, mean, so I, you'll, you, you'll make a point to see it? I'll make a point to see it unless, uh, unless the, the, we're told early on the reviews are horrible. Do you think they're going to be aiming for a summer blockbuster next summer? That I would make sense. That would make sense. Now, they do have a lot of other superhero movies next summer. Or we have the Avengers release next summer. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's, 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 it's hard to say. So going up against the Avengers, hopefully it's not released And, and Batman is, Batman's next year also. Oh, yeah, it is. So maybe they'll wait till the fall or uh, maybe. More close I, well, they almost, they almost should, it almost should be a summer movie though. It's, That's what it's got a lot of competition though. It does. Uh, well, let's move into some DVD news, and then we'll do the twist, and we'll move into our interview. Well, I found out uh, didn't see Green Lantern yet in theaters, and you know we've heard no small amount of criticism for it. But I, I still I'll get the DVD when it comes out. Uh, but the, the DVD and Blu-rays are going to hit the stands uh, October the fourteenth. Right, so you're excited about this. Now, yeah. this, this is non-animated, right? This, this is a real movie. This is the live-action one. The live one, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I have not watched it yet. But I've heard mixed reviews, and I definitely want to – I should rent it. I want to check it out, yeah. Yeah, yeah. In other DVD news, we have Lucas messing with the Blu-rays again. And and so what's what's the story behind this? Well, it seems like uh, Lucas wants to get all Lucas with uh, – um, the original movies as far as uh, adding more content to it. Yeah, so the deal is there's this period in episode six when, you know, Darth Vader comes to his son's rescue. His, his son is being electrocuted by Palpatine and mm-hmm. Luke's there in, in agony and he um, he decides to lift the Emperor off and throw him into the pit. Mm-hmm. And somewhere in there, there's this, this piece of silence and uh, and uh, and you know, Lucas was not happy with that silence, so he decided to insert this. No! My, my, my no! twice—it doesn't need to be in there. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so what? What? So, Lucas, this is what we say to that. Leave no! alone, George. Yeah, yeah. So we're gonna. <laughs> Well, you know, we we really don't like this idea. You know, it's it's his franchise. He could do whatever he wants with it, but he's losing a lot of credibility with uh, the fans here, as far as just keeping. Why, why put no in there? I think the scene works with the silence in there. Yeah. I mean, maybe maybe he wants to do something else. That's not all he wants to do. But in um, in episode um, uh, four, he want you know in that scene with uh, Ben Kenobi. Oh, yeah. With with after Luke has the crap beat out of him by the Sand People. Um, he starts coming out, and um, the, the Sandman see him. They take off running. Um, but he, now, they changed his collar as well. Now he, he supposedly makes this whale, this this dragon creature, and that's supposed this to create this crate dragon. So, and, and again, why is that? I mean, I, I like the idea that the Sand People are afraid of him, of just Obi Wan. You know, they, you know, don't, there's no, you know, don't be afraid of any crate dragons. There's, there's something about Obi Wan that yeah. just scares the crap out of him. That seems. That scene worked well without, you know, just being it that way. Yeah. <laughs> well, it is what it is, I guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, the reality is most people get him, and I may end up with him eventually. But. Yeah, it's going to be a long time for me. Uh, yeah. I have the DVDs. I think I'll be uh, okay with that. Oh, and just we're going to throw this into the feed, but uh, we mentioned this earlier that there's a Battlestar uh, wedding pose. Right. I saw this today. Um Somebody, they got married recently, and I guess they're, they're BSG fans, and so they reenacted the um, 
the photo of the the, the um, publicity photo of the cast of Battlestar Galactica in kind of a Last Supper type pose. Well, they they did their own. And, yeah, uh, it looks so pretty good. It looks pretty good. Yeah, yeah looks well, like they're having some fun there. They are definitely having some fun. Mm-hmm. Well, Miles, why don't you take us into a short this week in track? Well, um, the 45th anniversary is coming up real soon, and um, I saw this on Trek News. Um, so September 8th marks the 45th anniversary of uh, Star Trek hitting the airwaves, and to commemorate this momentous occasion, fans could submit images to be part of the three official Mosiacs, which will portray Captain Kirk, the USS Enterprise, and Spock. The Mosiacs will then be turned into limited edition prints by Fan Mosiacs, which will be a hosting event. To be included in this historic co- compilation, fans must visit the... Uh, Excuse me. Website uh, at midnight, September eighth. Uh, fans can choose whether to submit uh, to one image uh, or, or the deluxe edition set, which includes all three. The, the price for doing so covers the uh, image upload, uh, twenty-four by thirty-six mosaic print of choice, and numbered certificate of authenticity. Uh, as we previously reported, twenty-five hundred fans uh, may submit to and own each individual individual print, while uh, uh, one thousand seven hundred one may submit and own a deluxe edition print. Thousands have already signed up as a reminder email from the site. So for those who wish to participate, should keep a uh, vigilant in the part of the Star Trek history. And it's just a cool little mosaic. It has a little countdown clock of when it's going to be. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Very cool. What's well, nice. Mm-hmm. I like that. that that'll that be fun. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Miles, for uh, sharing this week in track. My pleasure. Well, let's move into our last promo tonight. And this is from Andrew, who does Pod Yes Squared, uh, an interview show where he talks about, he interviews people that are geeky, he's part of the Lifestyle uh, Pod, uh, Lifestyle Pod Network. And, and we're just going to play a little promo for him. And if you get a chance, check out his show. It's Andrew from Podcast Squared, and you're listening to the insightful, hilarious, and dead sexy Lifestyle Pod Network. If you like these podcasts and you want to hear about other interesting and similar podcasts, then check out my site, podcastsquared.com, for reviews of podcasts and interviews with your favorite podcast hosts, all conveniently located in a podcast. Who'd have thought? back and we have an interview to share with you mm-hmm. the guys from liberator mm-hmm. aaron pope and uh, uh jim surreal yeah who uh who cast well many many different people michael dorn michael dorn and uh, uh luke ringo uh peter wilson and um even lou grant uh plays the president in the yeah this. yeah so it, it's very very cool and so um we got a chance to sit down and talk with them and i first heard about this actually online from a Star Trek mom and uh, mm-hmm. Chris uh, Wood uh, right. tweeting about this, and we mm-hmm. said, "Well, we got to check these guys out." And mm-hmm. uh, we watched a little short. The short uh, I thought was very impressive. And we're going to see uh, what happens. They're going to be shopping this around, and they raised the funds in Kickstarter, so it should be good. 
So I believe that's it. Well, let's just uh, let's go ahead and listen to them talk about it and see about how, how all this came about and what we have to look forward to when they actually get a TV show or a full-length feature. My fellow Americans, late yesterday afternoon, a convicted felon known as the Liberator, Colonel Albert Migliocetti, committed a felonious attack on our nation. Forty-three innocent military men, all patriots, brutally cut down. The Liberator is now not only a traitor to his country, but a murderer and a fugitive. And as of now, public enemy number one. Ladies and gentlemen, we at the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast love to inform you about cool independent movie projects that are out there, and the one we're talking about today is very cool. Well, today we're talking with two actors, working with the live-action Incredible Hulk, and Worf, our favorite Klingon from Star Trek, an exciting new movie short. One of our guests' recent projects, Dark Reel, was nominated for Best Screenplay for at the Dark Carnival Film Festival and had the opportunity to work with uh, such notable actors such as uh, Eddie Furlong, Mercedes McNabb, and Lance Hendrickson. Project Liberator. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we are delighted to be speaking with the director, co-writer, uh, Mr. Aaron Pope, and uh, co-writer and producer, uh, Mr. Jim uh, uh, Surreal. Today, Mr. Pope uh, Mr. Pope, and uh, Mr. Surreal, welcome and thank you for taking time to talk with us in the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. Thank you very much. We're happy to be here. Thanks a lot, guys. Really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, <clears throat> we just, wa- you know, before we came in the show, we just watched this trailer again, and you know, I'm pretty impressed with it. I mean, I can't wait to see the entire finished product. Um, wow. H- how did you guys get into this whole thing of making movies? I don't want you to go for that. <laughs> All right. Um, well, you know, I, I moved out to Hollywood about 15 years ago, um, you know, kind of with, with the, the dream of getting into movies and absolutely no idea how to do so. And, I was fortunate enough to lose my bartending job and therefore be forced to actually go out and look for work and got a PA job and, um, you know, kind of worked my way up the ranks and eventually sold a script and then sold some more and some more and some more and started leveraging the writing work into directing work. And uh, here I am 15 years later. Very cool. And uh, in my case, it was uh, about 20 years ago, and uh, I came out here from New York having been working on a, a whole bunch of crappy, low-budget horror movies for this uh, New York company called Real Time. So those guys were really, really scrappy and Corman style, and I sort of cut my teeth learning how to make you know, feature films in 35mm for under $50,000 each. And, uh, you know, strictly guerrilla style. That's the way we did everything. So I came out here and, and just suddenly found myself working for TriStar Pictures on a whole bunch of movies, uh, you know, for PA at first and worked my way up to system coordinator. And then I got into screenwriting, sold a couple of things myself. Um, then the inevitable career crash had to figure out how to regroup and come back from that and, uh, wound up going to UCLA and getting a certificate in screenwriting and actually learning how to do all that stuff properly that I had been making money how to do for years, but, you know, could never get past a certain point. And then when I finally learned all that stuff, it was like, ah, Nirvana. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, basically here we are now, years later, we're kind of, you know, we're scrappy, we're empowered. We both, you know, kind of had experience in the system and have made movies. Uh, but now we're kind of at the point where, you know, we, we kind of want to seize the reins and do it ourselves and not, 
you know, sort of be beholden to the, the financiers and the studio system, you know, in order to be able to make our projects. Okay, so that's kind of, we want to get a little bit more into that whole idea of, you know, grabbing the reins and doing it yourself and handling the own, your own financing in a sense. Um, how did Liberator itself end up coming about? The idea for it, the story for it, et cetera. That was a project that um, it was about two years ago or so, and uh, you know, Lou Ferrigno was a family friend, and uh, you know, Lou's sort of been around in the background at, at family events, at my birthday party, etc., for years and years and years. And I always knew in the back of my head that you know, we, here's this amazing sort of internationally known icon who's been tragically underused. I mean, everybody knows this guy, and yet, you know, why is he not getting roles? So. I always had in the back of my mind that I had to find something for Lou um, because he was accessible and, and, like I said, internationally known. So, um, I mean, what's the most logical role for Lou? Well, superhero, and especially one who's now kind of aging and maybe falling on hard times. So I started thinking about, you know, kind of in a political context, what would it be like if there was a real superhero, kind of like a Superman or a Captain America type, somebody like that, who really was this kind of like icon of America, maybe in the employee of the U.S. government, what would that person, how, how would the most recent era of like, you know, nonstop war and, and everything that, you know, the U.S. has been up to, how would that person sort of deal with that? What would it do to that person? And uh, I thought, wow, this is, this is a great idea for somebody like Lou, you know, who, you know, in his own life has been, you know, a hero and a bodybuilding champion and kind of, you know, of, in recent times has, uh, you know, kind of fallen off the radar a little bit. So it seemed like a perfect fit. Uh, I sketched out, you know, a quick story outline just about 10 pages long about two years ago, and I sent it over to Aaron, and he was like, well, this is great, man. It was really all this, like, character stuff. We didn't really have, you know, the bare bones of the story yet. It was really just a day in the life, like 10 pages of, you know, this guy's day-to-day. And at the very end, we sort of revealed, oh, yeah, this guy's an ex-superhero. Now it all makes sense. And then they kind of expanded... Uh, from there, I'll let Aaron sort of pick up the story from there. Yeah, and it's just, um, you know, the one thing that um, kind of factored into is Jim and I are, are both uh, both have kids. And so one thing, when, when Jim sent me that first version of it, one thing that really kind of resonated was that this, this story is not, you know, it's about a superhero, yes, but it's also about a father. You know what I mean? And, and, and that's something that really kind of connected to me. And it was something I hadn't really seen in any, you know, any real way in other superhero stories. You know, there are sometimes superheroes have families in some sort, but you never really get into those relationships the way that this did. And that's what kind of separated and I realized, wow, okay, this is not us trying to do our lesser version of something that's already been out there. But this is this is something new and fresh and original and, and really interesting. And, you know, Jim and I have been working together for a while. We've written some stuff together. But truthfully, when he first kind of get, told me this idea, I thought, like, wow, that sounds really cool if it could work, but in, you know, a short script, how could this really work, basically? And then when he sent me his first version of it, I realized, wow, what an idiot I am. Obviously, Jim could pull this up because it was really good. And, uh, you know, and so we just, then we just started kind of developing it from there and kind of going, taking it in, in various different directions. And, um, you know, and, and like Jim said, we spent two years on this thing, really kind of exploring, like, every possible avenue of, you know, what this man's life is like now and how things could affect him, you know, as a almost as an ex-superhero, you know, what is what is the ex-superhero's world life like? And, um, you know, we, we just developed it over and over again, and we got to this point where the more we showed it to people, 
with each draft, the more and more people start going like, yeah, this is it. This is really clicking. This is really good. And at some point, we just got like nothing but positive input from it. And we thought, okay, <laughs> there we go. We got our script. Now it's time to take it from words on a page to images on a screen. Um, you've given us a little bit of a premise of Liberator. Can you keep going and, and, and uh, tell us who you have starring in this movie? Sure. Um, Liberator stars Lou Ferrigno as a, a washed-up former superhero uh, who's been disgraced, actually, from a, a black ops operation that went bad that he took the fall for, um, that he was not actually responsible for. Um, and his, his former boss, the guy that kind of brought him into the superhero program in the first place, played by Michael Dorn, um, sort of an, an old ally turned nemesis, the guy that was sort of on the crux when um, Liberator was convinced, basically, to take take the uh, take America's heat on his shoulders, essentially, and, and take the fall for this thing that went bad. Um, and as our story picks up, basically, Al, you know, formerly known as the Liberator, but now we're kind of dealing with him in his real world. Um, Al has been writing a tell-all book about what actually happened that fateful day, and the whole reason is because. You know, he needs to reconnect with his daughter, who he's been estranged with. And so he comes to do an interview with an alternative um, media outlet, and he's interviewed by Peter Wilson from La Femme Nikita. And through that interview, we start to get more insight into what his life is like now, having once been a hero and now being branded a traitor. And as that interview goes forward, we start to find out there's more going on here today than... uh, and what we realize when it starts. And I don't want to go into all the details going forward, but let's just say there's a little bit of ass-kicking to come. Right. Awesome. <laughs> which, you, which, you, which you want to see if you have Lou Ferrigno in it, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> exactly, yeah. No, you can't, you can't make a, a movie about an ex-superhero with Lou Ferrigno without at least a, you know, a, a, a healthy dollop of butt-kick. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Well, you know the, the, the cast you have surrounding it. You know, like uh, you know what the, uh, uh, the the girl. I, her name is Kiyosu from Nikita from the thing. Uh, who is that again? Peter Wilson. Which girl was that? Oh, Peter, Peter Wilson. You, you have you have that. You have Michael Dorn. This seems to be a very geek centric cast. And I guess what I mean by that is <laughs> this seems to be people that uh, there's a lot of people. Well, like, yeah, okay. Geeks, so they were the people we wanted. <laughs> <laughs> How did you go? I mean, I mean, Lou Ferrigno obviously was family friend. How did you go lining up the other actors? Did you just kind of buy into it or? Well, let me take that one. Um, yeah, basically it is, uh, well, like I said, Lou was a family friend. So, so, you know, we, we were able to get Lou and, you know, by the way, just because he was a family friend doesn't mean he was easy to get. Right. Um, you know, yeah. we, we had to go through several different drafts of, uh, you know, showing it to, uh, Lou and his wonderful wife Carla, who kind of acts as Lou's manager, until they got to the point where they really wanted to sign on, and they had some good notes too, um, and they were really kind of very helpful in, um, you know, in what they thought the character should be, and their instincts were actually right on. So it took us a little while to actually really get Lou to sign on. He was, you know, it was always kind of like Lou was sort of interested, but you know, we needed to do X, Y, and Z, and you know, to actually get him to commit. And finally, that happened in the spring. Uh, actually, I think it was more like about uh, February of this year. Uh, once we had Lou, then it was a question of, um, you know, coming up with a budget uh, so we could actually make the movie and seeing who we could afford and who we could reasonably get. Now, uh, I had worked with uh, 
Asner on a commercial. I, I directed a uh, commercial for AE 911 Truth about two years ago. So I knew Ed, and I knew his assistant, and I knew Ed is a really nice guy and, and very accessible, uh, but also as busy as hell, and he's in his 80s now. So, um, But I thought, wow, this would be a fantastic guy to get to play the President of the United States. Talk about gravitas, you know, Ed freaking Asner. Could we actually get him? So I started talking back and forth with his assistant, uh, Patty, and it turned out that Ed had a, a tiny little hole in his schedule on Memorial Day afternoon of this year. <laughs> so, so I called up Aaron and I, I called up Gavin. When he says a tiny hole in his schedule, he's not kidding. It was yeah. an hour. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Literally, it was an hour, and you know, we couldn't bring him to a set or anything like that. We literally, in order to get Ed Asner, we had to go to his house, and he was willing to actually let us redress the office of his house uh, in order to shoot uh, his scene. So, um, so we did. We, we basically, you know, we just rounded up the troops and we said, okay, guys, cancel your barbecues. <laughs> you know, we're going over to Ed Asner's house. And, uh, you know, so Memorial Day, we, we, we got Ed. And then once we got Ed, the, the, um, you know, again, that gravitas, that validity of having an Emmy winning actor, you know, who's so well respected, that frankly made the rest of the casting pretty easy. Um, and then I, you know, at that point we started casting the rest of the movie because we actually shot the Ed Asner stuff about a month before we even began principal photography again, just because of his availability. Um, and then from there, you know, I, I, we simply made up a list of who we wanted to be in this movie. And we were like, General Pollard, you know, this is a guy who's got to be a known icon. It has to be somebody we can afford, but somebody who, when he walks into a room, people go, Oh, cool! It's that guy. Right. And so, top top of our list was Michael Dorn from Star Trek, Mister Worf. You know, I mean, here's a guy who you know everybody loves. Everybody loves Mister Worf, but we haven't really seen him that much out of his makeup, of course. So, um, called up his agent and and you know, and I told him a little bit about the movie, and then I said, "Oh yeah, and we've got Ed Asner as a president." And then I was like, "Really? You've got Ed Asner? Uh, okay, hold on." And he actually puts me on hold, and he calls up Ed Asner's assistant to verify that we had Ed on board. And then he gets back on the line about a minute and a half later. He's like, okay, send me the script. <laughs> <laughs> that is really cool. And then we, and the same thing with Peter, you know, and then uh, we basically, we got Peter Wilson and Michael Dorn to both commit to do the movie, I think on the same day or within a day of each other. And it was just yeah, simply, it was, you it know, was the same day, but it was also the same day that we got our composer. Like, it was just everything right. was in place in that day. Yeah. Yeah, and, and by the way, another another geek, uh, you know, credit and probably below a lot of people's radar, but Timothy Wynn, our amazing composer, uh, who's probably best known for doing the uh, hit video game uh, Red Faction Gorilla, which is one of my favorite video games ever made. The incredible orchestral score he did for that game with the, uh, with the Skywalker Orchestra. So, you know, that was our first choice for to go after. And we literally nailed down, like, our three top choices for composer, uh, Marla Criswell and General Pollard all in the same day. So it was, that was a beautiful day. Mm. Yeah. So, so you filmed the part with Asner earlier. Um, the rest of the film, uh, is it in production? Is it completed? I and mean, where, where, what's the status as far as the, the actual film itself? Well, it's, um, it is completed ish. Okay. <laughs> it is, it is basically completed, um, with the exception of some, you know, some pickup stuff we're going to do and some reshoot stuff, um, you know, and there's a sequence that that we always knew we were going to kind of push down the road until we got a little bit more funding, which we now have. Um, 
so we're gonna we're gonna reshoot some stuff there. But I mean, it's it's largely finished. We're we're cutting it. You know, we're we're seeing what it is already, um, and it's coming along. It's fantastic. You know, it's coming along great. And um, you know, so now it's really a matter of kind of filling in the holes, kind of cleaning up the the things that could use a couple more shots. And but it but it's uh, it's ninety five percent shot. It's one of those things where you know we we had a certain amount of money to make the movie, and uh, it was just enough, like literally just enough, to get uh, to get the basics done. But we kind of knew that um, you know if we had a little bit more money, there was uh, things that we would like to get in addition to that, and things we'd like to do better. Um, and you know that's where the Kickstarter funding came in. So now we actually have the resources to do that. Uh, Miles, yeah, Miles. <laughs> Um, so, and this Kickstarter thing was it was a um, grassroots uh, effort um, on, uh, I guess, the fans' part. Absolutely, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and that was kind of the whole idea was, you know, specifically because we knew that we had names in this film that, uh, you know, that appealed to people like us, you know, people who are fans of, you know, superheroes and comic books and sci-fi, uh, you know, and obviously this is like the biggest and most active, most intense fan base in the world. Um, so we kind of realized that, um, you know, the, these people not only would be a great asset for, um, you know, crowdfunding, uh, but also, you know, to build a base to get behind the film. And uh, once once we kind of realized that we needed to be spreading the word and making people aware of our movie in the first place, it seemed only natural to sort of combine that with a crowdfunding campaign. Um, you know, I mean, the, the Comic-Con contingent of which we are all part of, um you know, has basically sustained me throughout my entire life, and uh, we knew that they would respond to this movie too. Well, and I know, I know that one of the things that first drew our attention to, I and mean, when you throw when you throw names like Michael Dorn and Lou Ferrigno around, you're like, oh, these are people I know. And um, the buzz that I was seeing on Twitter and on our Facebook fan page, you know, these are names that people are like, oh yeah, cool. Uh, I want to find out more about this. And there was a lot of seemed to be a lot of buzz just because of those names and the fact that you had them had to be one of the things that really pushed uh, Kickstarter over the edge. Now, I've never done or never really been a part of a Kickstarter project. Can you explain a little bit to us about how you went into the process, what it was like while you were waiting for the deadline to hit? I mean, how does that all work out? Like this, we sweated bullets until the last minute. <laughs> <laughs> He's right. He's absolutely right. I mean... Talk about a nail biter, you know. Um, here, here's the thing, you know, we were basically newbies to the whole crowdfunding thing. I mean, we'd heard about Kickstarter. I mean, I, I've known some people who who've had some success with it, but I've known a lot more people who have flamed out uh, and did not hit their goal. And you know, we kind of figured, perhaps very naively, that because you know we did have you know this really cool sort of genre cast that you know the, that the fan base would would sort of rally around that. Uh, it would be relatively easy. I mean, we knew we'd have to, you know, pound the pavement a little bit and get the word out there, but it, it, we didn't realize it was going to be just as difficult as it really was. But it turns out that, um, you know, you really do need to, you know, be out there on on Twitter, like, you know, every single day, sort of banging the drum, you know, making friends with people, to, you know, uh, Facebook, kind of posting every single day updates, you know, getting people aware of your project. Um, it's, it was extremely labor intensive and for a while there, I mean, for, our campaign was only 30 days long on Kickstarter, but, you know, for a while we were like 
just sort of stuck in the doldrums of about, you know, 15% financing and looking at ourselves and going like, you know, we've got like, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of friends on Facebook. We have like over oh, a thousand likes on Liberator between our, our Kickstarter page and our, our Kickstarter Facebook page. It's like, where, where are the, you know, where's the money? Where people can't put it, put up a dollar to this film, you know, please give us a dollar. But, um, but you know, people sort of need to feel like, they know you, and and I totally respect that and understand that. And then once they actually feel like, okay, this guy is cool, you know, I'm down with this, then, then you know, they open up their heart to you. And that was the thing. It took us a while to actually get to that point where we sort of achieved that critical mass. And, you know, we're, we're finally, you know, the, the, the people on our, our, on our Twitter feed were sort of like rallying to help us. And, that, you know, the closer we got to the deadline, the more it became like, Hey, this is a cool project, everybody. Be aware of this. This is like this scrappy little indie film with all these genre icons. Help these guys, you know? And then, you know, like at the last minute, people did, you know, just like they just started coming out of the woodwork, man. They were like, yeah, I believe in this. Let's go for it. So, yeah, it was awesome. You used an interesting analogy about people just kind of getting to know you a little bit. Uh, I think it's one of the great things about, you know, Twitter and Facebook that, you know, people can make comments and you can kind of interact and you do kind of, I realize it's not necessarily knowing someone like going out, you know, to a restaurant or a bar or something like that, but it is a sense where they can at least have some sort of connection to you. And my wife, who runs a nonprofit, you know, talks about it's like dating the client. You go out on your first date. Well, you don't really commit in that first date, but you kind of get to know each other. And down the road, there's more of a commitment to do financing and stuff like that later on. Right. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So very cool. So, so the movie is virtually made minus a few things. When can we expect to start hearing promotion for it? I mean, other than what's already been done, uh, when are we looking at release? Tell us about that process. We don't have a, a hard date yet. Um, it's all about, you know, kind of finishing off, you know, those pieces that are still remaining to be done, but it won't be long. I mean, you know, the, uh, the, the thing we're doing here is basically we are creating a story world and a character that's going to then expand into to other um, avenues, whether it's a, a full feature or a television series or graphic novels or what have you. But um, the, the form in which this is going to be completed and, and the, this stage will not be very far down the road, and we'll start to, you know, just really get it out there. And if, if the Kickstarter campaign is any indication, you know, there is a snowball effect, and once people start hearing about it, Hopefully, we'll continue to spread, and sites like yours will, can you know, reach out to the to the real fan base, the people that this is going to appeal to in a big way, anyway. And it'll kind of, I, I have a sense that it will just really spiral as soon as we get going. So, right. I guess that's sort of my vague answer is that you know, <laughs> we don't have a hard date, but that it's not going to be far down the road. Right, and and the completed project will be what a fifteen minute, half an hour, full length movie. I mean, what are we looking at? Yeah, what, what a, the completed project in this stage would be about probably about a 20-minute um, sort of short film slash presentation pilot. It kind of it plays as both things. We, one balancing act we had to do in our um, in our writing was write something that felt like the start of a story and also a complete story in and of itself, and it, and it really kind of works as both things. And so, you know, what we will have is a 20-minute you know, episode in this character's life that kind of starts off that story um, that will, you know, as I said, we will, we're going to explore a lot of options and, you know, 
it may become a feature. It may become a TV series. Um, you know, may become the start of a graphic novel. You know, we, we're not sure yet where it goes from here. But the finished project, when this thing's done, will be about a 20-minute self-contained story that is also the launching point for a, a grander story. Mm-hmm. And, and how will and how will uh, people who want to see this be able to access uh, this movie? Or do you not know for sure yet? Yeah, we don't we don't know for sure yet. We will make certain that it that it gets out there and that it's um, you know something that people you know will have access to. Absolutely, it's not going to be just you know. I don't know, a calling card short. I know sometimes people make make shorts as like a calling card to, to get other work. That's not the case with this at all. You know, this is something that we want people to see and we want to get it out there. So we don't know yet in exactly what form that <laughs> that delivery will be, but it will it'll happen definitely. Okay, very cool. Cool. Well, let me let me let me add to the vagueness uh, and say, um, <laughs> yeah, no. The, the reason Aaron is being a, a little bit vague here is because I mean we do have a strategy, and it's sort of a multi-tiered strategy, and it really depends on a bunch of different factors. Exactly how and when the film becomes available to the public. Um, you know, we, you know, Aaron and I are both uh, represented, so we have, um, you know, basically our agent and our manager are going to be, you know, taking this thing around and shopping it just as they would a spec screenplay or, or, or a pilot throughout town. So that's, that's basically avenue number one. So depending on what happens with that, it, you know, it might be a while until the actual short gets released to the public because, let's say, for example, it might get picked up and, you know, turned into a series or, you know, and of course, that would be, you know, cross our fingers that would, that, that would happen. That would be amazing. Um, or... You know, at the same time, we're talking about going on the festival circuit, in which case, you know, people would see it uh, at whatever festivals that, you know, over the course of the next year or so that it plays at before we finally, you know, release it on iTunes and DVD and everything else. Um, so, so there's kind of like multiple pathways that we're talking about for this uh, all at the same time. We kind of have to play it a little bit closer to the vest depending on, you know, the opportunities. But the ultimate goal is um, to really use this as a launching point for the continuing adventures of this character in whatever format that, that winds up being. Yeah. Well, it would certainly be awesome to see Lou Ferrigno back in the, the television screen again and doing a role like this sounds very interesting and even to see Michael Dorn in it. So. I, I, let, me, let me say one thing when you said I kind of feel like this should be stated. I, I think people are going to be really surprised and, and pleasantly surprised when they see Lou's performance in this movie. Um, it because I, I, it's an action movie in some way, but as I was talking earlier about this, this is a story of a, a father, you know, a man right. kind of dealing with, with life. Lou, as, I, as I'm sitting in the editing room, I often find myself almost being negligent in my editing duties because I get stuck watching his performance. I, I start watching it. Wow, this, I mean, he is giving a really powerful, nuanced performance in in the quieter moments. Like, yeah, we know he can kick some ass, and he does. Right. But it's the moments when he's reflecting or talking, you know, like he's giving this really amazing performance. And I think that I, I think that when fans get a chance to see that, which we haven't been exposed to enough of yet, but when we see what a truly talented actor Lou actually is, you know, it's gonna it's gonna blow people away. Oh. Well, I'm looking forward to it. You mentioned kind of this whole idea of family playing into it and it's you know, we look at the the modern superhero, at least as what we've seen on the screen and even in television we really don't deal with the impact this has in their family and what it's done to family and right. the struggles with family. And so, you know, I'm a father myself. I have a three year, I have a four year old son and a nine year old daughter who are 
uh, and my son is absolutely loves superheroes, but there is a sense where we don't see a lot of family play into the superhero world many times. Right. Well, yeah, again, that's something we deliberately wanted. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, yeah, I I have a four-year-old son myself, and I'm kind of in that that exact same place, you know. I mean, we watch, I mean, we watch tons of superhero stuff, you know, everything we can we can lay our eyes upon, but that's exactly the case is that, you know, superheroes tend to be these, these sort of outsider figures that, that don't have, um, family connections and, you know, but, but as Jim and I kind of were conceiving of the story, it was all about, well, if this was a real, if we're not looking at a fantasy world, if we're placing it in the here and now, if this is a real man, then he would have these real attachments. And when life was bad, those attachments would become detachments, and you know the, he would. That this is not a man without emotion. This is a man who is, is dealing with the things that we all deal with, and you know we try to really put that on the page and then on the screen. And like I said, you know Lou just brings it in a way that yeah, I, I think most people wouldn't expect. Awesome. Well, anything else you want to say about uh, Liberator um, before we uh, wrap up the interview here? Well, I, I just you got yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is, you know, this whole project for me has been such a labor of love from the beginning. I mean, you want to talk about something that, that you're passionate about. I mean, the, you know, from, from day one, this has been, you know, like the most personal project I could possibly do. And that sounds ridiculous when you're talking about a superhero movie. But this is specifically because this was a superhero that we created, um, that speaks to us. You know, I'm a dad also. You know, I've got an 11-year-old daughter. And, you know, all the emotions in that film, everything that Lou is experiencing, which you will see in the movie, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty textured. As Aaron said, the performance is, is freaking dynamite. Um, but, but, you know, I mean, it's, we really tried to bring that sort of texture to it, that, that real-life experience to it, in the context of, you know, this wonderfully iconic, sort of like fallen Superman-type guy. And... You know, that just, like, totally speaks to everything that I'm about, you know. Um, so, I mean, boy, talk about, like, you know, how thrilling is it to be part of this project? I mean, frankly, you know, if the studios came along and said, here, we want you to do whatever, Green Lantern 2 or something like that, I'd be like, cool, all right, you know, that sounds like a really exciting, fun project. But would we be personally invested in it? You know what, I'm a big Green Lantern fan, but no. But something like this? You know, I mean, it, it, it literally is like everything I've always wanted to say as a writer and as a filmmaker, all in this, like, little 20-minute movie, plus giving homage to, you know, my comic book, uh, you know, upbringing and the icons that I loved watching uh, so much, you know, on TV growing up. So, um, I mean, this is like, you know, am, am I pleased with how this is coming out? Am I pleased to be a part of this? Hell yeah! <laughs> you know? <laughs> awesome. Jim, did you have anything you want to add? Well, that, that was... Oh, that was, <laughs> oh I'm sorry. But, right. Um, I would I'd say, I mean, you know, what Jim said is, is you know, obviously pretty uh, pretty passionate, and I, I think, you know, I'm the same way. It's, um, although I, I would say if the studios are listening and want us to be Green Lantern too, don't worry, we'll get invested in it. We'll do it. Give us a call. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm... I, that's exactly what Jim was saying. I mean, this, this really is a labor of love. You know, we... Jim and I are both working writers and, and, you know, producing and directing, and, and we make our living doing these things. But with this movie, you know, we're not taking a penny. We're putting ourselves into it. And, you know, that's all because of the fact that we feel like this is a story worth telling, you know, that this is a, something that that we should be watching. And, um, you know, we're trying to make something that 
that makes, you know, the, the other fans out there who are like us, the other science fiction and comic book fans out there, makes them proud of, of what it is that we all, you know, love and believe in. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for uh, stopping into the Sci-Fi Diner and uh, talking with us about Liberator. And we cannot wait to see more about what happens and hear about it. We're following you on Twitter. Uh, we're liking your Facebook page, and we hope to keep up on what's happening in the world of Liberator. And hopefully, we'll get some good news down the pike that it's been signed for a larger deal. So, but, awesome. Miles, anything else you want to say? Um. Well, I'll just say, you know, I, I, I sense your passion. It's infectious and, um, I can't wait to see it. It looks, it looks like it's going to be phenomenal. Thank you. Fantastic. Thanks guys. Appreciate it. Nope. All right. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Welcome back, and uh, we got to wrap up the show, Miles. So we have a sci-fi five of five from our friend uh, JP. We blame JP for this one. <laughs> I take no credit or responsibility, JP. If you're listening, I uh, I wash my hands of this. Mm. But uh, it's a good it's a good sci-fi five and five. Oh right, uh, his uh, favorite uh, sci his favorite five sci-fi movies. Yeah, so. So what, why don't we start with five and work our way backwards? Do you want to take the odds or the evens? Uh, I'll do the evens. All right. I'll do the odds. Existence. Another one. This is number five. Comes in for number five of him. Uh, uh, number five for him, if I can speak. It's another one that he's not sure is technically sci-fi, but he considers it to be. I've seen Existence or part of it. I don't think I ever finished it. Mm -hmm. um, did you see this movie? I, I'm not familiar with it at all. Yeah, well, maybe that'll have to be a rewind. Okay. But. Well, next is uh, the Matrix trilogy. Um, very good choices. Your top five, uh, and we had Scott and I and uh, Kevin had a good time uh, talking about the Matrix movies. Yeah, everyone. the uh, trilogy. So we're all for them. Mm -hmm. Three, probably my favorite of the Star Wars movies, Empire Strikes Back. I think people are realizing that might be the best out of it. All is, of them. It is great. Some great iconic scenes when you see the the. Uh, the Imperial walkers coming toward you in the storm. I just love that scene. Mm -hmm. It gives me chills every time I see it. And we get, we see our heroes in really, really bad spots. Right, mm -hmm. right. Uh, next one is on his list, uh, the, the original, uh, the original Star Wars movie. Yeah. yeah, I was wondering which one he met and I realized, oh wait, that was the name. Yes. Yeah, it was. Star Wars New Hope are the mm -hmm. original Star Wars movie. This is the one where Greeter shot first, right? Of course. Right, right. And where Obi-Wan, you know, you know, has the, uh, call of the, the desert, the dead, the Kree Jagan call. Is that, is the one? yeah, whatever. Uh, that's, yes. new, that's a new one. And that's the, and it's also the one where Han Solo steps on, uh, um, Jabba the Hutt's tail. Oh yeah, most definitely. That mm -hmm. is definitely the one. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, and we end with his number one, Blade Runner. No surprise that mm -hmm. that makes a, a lot of people's number one list. Right, and uh, I think we'll, we'll, we're, that's going to be a sci-fi reef one. Eventually. Eventually, yeah. So eventually we'll we'll do it. So I believe that's it for the Sci-Fi 5 and 5. So All thank right. you, J.P. Harvey. And um, again, if you want to write into the show or give us your thoughts about anything we said tonight or share your Sci-Fi 5 and 5, or better yet, vie for that trivia, you can email us to sci-fi diner podcast at gmail.com. Call us at 1-888-508-4343. And uh, we'll take whatever you give, mostly. Yeah. The rest I'll give to Miles. So, f folks, uh, 
help us out with this question. I, I know you can do it. Yep, uh, Wikipedia and IMDb is your friend. Yes. Yep. Well, thank you so much for joining us for episode 110, and uh, we will see you next week when we uh, we interview, when we talk about our interview with, um, uh, who's that guy again? Ball. Yes. Ball. Cliff Simon. Cliff Simon. Mm-hmm. It's a great interview with a male model. <laughs> so, and uh, very cool. I believe that's it, Miles. Till next time, good night and good luck. We'll see you.